Merry Christmas. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We, it is the same set of verses that if you have a worship guide, it is in your worship guide this morning. We will be looking at Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 to 5 this morning. And if you are new to church or if it's been a long time since you have looked at the Bible, the large numbers in the Bible are the chapter divisions. Those small numbers are the verse divisions. And so we'll be looking at the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 40. I shared this with my Sunday school class this morning, but I'll share it with you all today. One of my favorite uh, things about Christmas, I came across this about 18, 20 years ago in reading. This is, this is when nerdiness pays off and reading too much pays off. Um, but I uh, realized, I found that uh, there is a person that stands behind uh, the legend of old Saint Nick and Santa Claus. Uh, that person is a man by, by the name of Nicholas who lived in the town of Myra, modern day Turkey. And he didn't have a sleigh or reindeer um, or wear a funny hat and bright red clothing. Uh, instead, he, he was a church leader and on several occasions he was known for his generosity. One in particular, where there were three young girls who, because of their poverty of their family, they were going to be sold into slavery. Three girls in three separate families, and he came through and dropped sacks of gold to provide for their needs uh, so that they would not be sold. He dropped it through the windows during the night, and uh, you can see where that would begin to build the legend of Santa Claus. But it gets better. My favorite part of the uh, Saint Nick tradition is, and it, it is sort of legendary, but he lived during the time of a man by the name of Arius who denied the teaching that Jesus, or sorry, rather, he denied the truth that we see in the Bible that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And there was a council in Nicaea where church leaders were gathering to discuss this new teaching of Arius and how he was denying who Christ was. And Arius was so frustrated and angry. I'm sorry, Nicholas was so frustrated and angry with Arius for what he was saying about Christ, how he was lowering Christ from being God Almighty to merely a created being. that He lost his cool in the middle of that council and punched Arius right in the face which really changes your view of Christmas, right? And, and, Saint, and Santa Claus and all the rest. Uh, but that's one of the few times I think history is better than the mythology that we have today of Santa Claus. But that has nothing to do with the sermon this morning. That is just, <laughs> that is just a helpful piece of history. That's why you should read. You come across gems like that. Um, it is the last week of Christmas. You know, children can sense it deep in their bones. They know it's coming. There is a, a sort of feverish excitement that's growing. The lights, the decorations, the trees all lit up. The smell of baking and baked goods. Parties at school. 
For adults, it's, it's much the same. We, many of us were excited about seeing and being with family, being with friends, having parties, doing all of those things, opening presents or, or giving presents. That is a, a big part uh, of being a parent. You, you're no longer excited about so much getting presents. You're now the one giving the presents primarily. But it is more than that. Christmas, for many of us, doesn't hold that same, that same awe, that same feeling, that same excitement. For some, it's simply because we're in the last week of Christmas and you still have no idea what to get that special someone. That panic is starting to set in. Do you feel it yet? You still have plenty of time. And you're going to be telling yourself this all the way up until Christmas Eve. You have plenty of time. But for many more of us, as we arrive at Christmas, there is a sense of not just what is missing, but who is missing. Those that we love that are no longer with us. Those whom have gone on before us. And Christmas is a time of joy, but it is mixed with all sorts of other feelings, a sense of longing. But even beyond all of our hopes and our desires, our longings, Christmas for many of us is is played, it begins really in a minor key. If it was a piece of music, it would be played in the minor key. The reason the world needs Christmas is because it is a broken place. It is a sin-broken place, and we are a sin-broken people. That is the message of the Bible. We see that that message in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. You'll forgive me for not reading them But from the very beginning, we sense that this is a broken world. The very people of God, God himself has rescued and redeemed and established the the people of Israel. They have rebelled and turned against him. Isaiah is writing, the, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he is writing to the people of his own day. To the people that are in rebellion, living for themselves, living as they please, still giving some acknowledgement to God. But really, it's, it's, it's only as a stepping stone to allow them to continue to live life as they please. But from chapter 40 onward, there is a, a grand shift. And it's because Isaiah is no longer primarily writing to the people in his own day. He's actually writing to the people who will live a century or so later. To the people who will find themselves in captivity. Which is itself, in his own day, the people of Israel did not believe they could ever be conquered, that they would ever be taken away in exile or captivity. They were God's people. God would never allow them to to experience that, no matter how bad they were. But Isaiah writes, chapter 40 on, is written to this people of Israel in exile. The people who had been conquered. 
the people who would hope and long to return. But you see the hopelessness throughout Isaiah. It begins in chapter 1. Let me just read a few sections from Isaiah 1 and and onward. He writes in verse 2, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He's speaking, this is the Lord speaking of Israel. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people, they do not understand. The Lord is in essence saying, his people are dumber than, than these animals. He goes on, a sinful, they are a sinful nation, a people laden down, burdened with iniquity. They are the offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. And the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and, and open raw wounds. He goes on in that same chapter to describe how he is fed up with their worship. He says in verses 13 to 15, bring no more vain offerings that is they are your offerings your worship is useless incense is an abomination to me your new moon and sabbath these celebrations that you have the calling of convocations he says i cannot endure them my soul hates them they have become a burden to me i am weary of bearing them When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. All throughout these first 39 chapters, the message that Isaiah is trying to convey is that the people of Israel need to see, we need to see that the Lord will rescue and deliver those who hope in him, who trust in him and follow after him. But again and again, the people of Israel turn, they rebel, they go their own way, they want nothing to do with God. They rely on kingdoms, other kingdoms to help them out. They rely on their wealth and their riches. We do have one bright spot in, verse, in chapters 36 to 37. When the king of Assyria comes, Sennacherib, and he makes war against Israel. And he he conquers all the way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the last stronghold. And Hezekiah, who had been putting his trust in Egypt to come rescue them and help them out, he turns and at the end, he, he trusts solely and completely And God alone. And because he trusts in God, God miraculously delivers the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem. And it would seem that everything is going to start getting better. But in the very next chapters, we find that though he trusts in the Lord, at the end, in chapter 39, Babylonian emissary, group from Babylon come and Hezekiah filled with arrogance and pride says let me show you 
my house. Let me show you my kingdom. Let me show you my wealth. And so he, he leads them through his, his palace, showing them his, his vast wealth. It's, it's like the, the ancient version of, um, of cribs or, or uh, some home do-it-yourself network. It's like, it, it, this is the place to live. And he is bragging, look at everything I have. Look how wealthy and powerful I am. And because of that, chapter 39 ends with these words, beginning with verse five. Then Isaiah, this is the prophet of the Lord, said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day, all of it shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You see Hezekiah's response in verse eight. The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said... At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Because of his arrogance, God is going to give Jerusalem over to, the, over to Babylon. They will indeed be conquered. And Hezekiah's response, rather than repentance, rather than sorrow, is, is what so many of us would respond. Well, at least I won't experience any of that. At least it'll be okay in my lifetime. At least I won't have to make those decisions and deal with that hardship. And the page turns to chapter 40. And there is here, we have this this dramatic change. The whole first half, the whole first 39 chapters are played in this minor key. But Isaiah now begins talking to the people who will be rather than the people who are in his day. In fact, one of the things that's astonishing is that Isaiah will indeed name the very king who will be a century later, who will release the people from captivity. He gives him his name. A man who is not even a glint in his parents' eyes, so to speak. What we have in chapter 40, these first five verses, is this commission and then this voice and then the glory. A commission and then the voice and then the glory. And it's, it really breaks up that simply and it leads us to Christmas. This is the state of the world, a broken world full of broken people. And here comes the good news of God. He says, commissioning, commissioning all of his prophets, commissioning all people. He writes, comfort, yes, comfort my people. Here he seems to be talking to a, a wide group of people, maybe, maybe a large group of prophets. But the message is commissioning comfort for his people. And this is, this is a dramatic change. I mean, massive change. When I was growing up, um, whenever my brother or I did something that we weren't supposed to do that really upset my, my mom and dad, my mom would sometimes, half jokingly, half serious, look at my dad and say, like, they're your sons. 
Maybe some of you have experienced your parents saying something like that. The, that. That's all you. We have something similar going on here. In the first 39 chapters, over and over and over again, the people of Israel, God refers to them as this people. So we see early on, it is this people in chapter six whose hearts are dull with apathy toward God. It is this people in chapter eight who have refused to follow in the way of God. It is this people again and again and again who honors God with their lips while their hearts are far from him. It is this people who are, un, who are proud and arrogant in the face of God. And now after chapters of calling them and referring to them as this people more than a dozen times now it shifts now he says comfort comfort my people says the Lord have you ever felt that sense of shame and guilt like perhaps the Lord is referring to you as part of this people As if you are unworthy of coming before him. One more step astray and God will just be done with you. The people of Israel in captivity, you can imagine the questions that they were asking. How could God have allowed this to happen? Why are we here? Is, is, has God now forsaken us because of our sin? Is he done with us? Are we any longer his people? Is there any hope? And Isaiah tells them a century in advance, comfort, comfort my people. Friend, here we have a word from the Lord that, that those whom God rescues through his son, those who put their faith in Jesus alone, they are not those people, they're not this people. They are, we are in Christ Jesus to the Lord, my people. And that, that changes everything. And this is a commission to comfort. Comfort. It is the comfort of a father's warm embrace after discipline. And the fact that this command is repeated twice tells us that there is, there is some emotional intensity here. That is, we, we are not to view God in our distress. We are not to view him as, as if he is distant and uncaring. Here, the people of Israel, by this time, the context is that they are in captivity. They are the ones to whom Isaiah is writing. They are the ones who are burdened with brokenness. They are the ones who, who are the unfaithful. Who are, as were sung earlier, oh, come all you, not just faithful, oh, come all you unfaithful. And comfort is given. God longs to comfort his broken people. He longs to help. He longs to assuage our pain. And here we see this message of comfort. Comfort, yes. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak 
comfort to Jerusalem and, and cry out to her. What shall we cry? What is this message of comfort? That her warfare is ended. Or you might translate that word warfare as her, her time of pain and hardship and duress. She has been in captivity. It is over. Her warfare, her hardship is ended. The punishment that they have been assigned, the, that work detail is finished. How? Why? Because her iniquity is pardoned. It has been paid for. And how has it been paid for? Is it because they have served their time? This Christmas season, many of you, many of us, will indulge a little bit more in foods that we don't traditionally eat. You're going to have a big meal, have whatever dessert comes with it as you eat with the family. Christmas cookies are being sent out. This, this uh, past Friday night, a number of you got together and packed Christmas tins laden with, with um, not so much vegetables and fruit. No one opens a Christmas tin and says, celery, thank you. Here, what we have is this picture of God being merciful to us despite our sinfulness. And just as you, you might eat that entire tin, not at once, but over the course of, you know, an hour, <laughs> you might feel the necessity to go to the gym, get on the treadmill. To do what? Why? To work it off, right? The people of Israel, their sin is pardoned not because they have worked it off. Where is their pardon come from? Look with me. For she has received from their own hand? No. From the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. This is the message of comfort. This is the message of comfort. That there is more than enough in Christ. As it has been said, there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. So comfort, comfort my People. This is what we see all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. We don't supplement the work of God. We don't add to it. We don't help him out in any way. It comes only and solely through the Lord's hand, through his mercy, through his provision. You know, sometimes when you might go out to eat with someone they might take the check and you might, uh, you might say, let me handle the, the tip. I'll take the tip. I'll contribute a little bit. It may not be much, but I'll handle the tip. You handle the check. We'll, we'll work things out. We do nothing in this case. Christ has paid for it all. 
And this is, this is pointing us to the cross. But we don't get to the cross without the cradle. And that's, that's where we come next. Verses 40, verses 1 and 2 is this call to comfort and to take comfort in the, in the riches of the grace of God, the forgiveness and the pardon that he alone can give. And now we approach the voice. Verses 3 and 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain shall be brought and hill, be brought low. The crooked places will be made straight and the, the rough places smooth. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know, Isaiah's not here writing about a, an ancient um, singing show that everyone will like. This isn't the voice on TV. This is a particular person. If verse 1 is, is an invitation, and not just an invitation, a commandment, a commission given to a wide range of people to comfort, verse 3 begins this call, not just to a large group of people, but to one person in particular. One voice out of them all. And the role of this voice is to prepare the way of the Lord. It is, it is in the wilderness, which is an odd place for this, for, the, for this voice to come from. But the job of this voice is to prepare the way of the Lord. To, to prepare a highway for our God. You've traveled through the mountains. You've traveled through hills. And the desire is you drive, you you see what has been done to make the roadways flat so that we can drive through. Mountains are cut out. Roadways are prepared. Things are leveled, sort of, as leveled as we humanly can get. But the job of this voice is to prepare the way of the Lord to level every obstacle so that the way of God is straight. And that someone who this voice is, is, is none other than John the Baptist. In fact, in 1 John 21, 23, when John the Baptist is asked about his identity, who he is, and are you Elijah, are, are you Moses, who, who are you in terms of uh, what we are expecting in the future? And his response is, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. He knows that's his job. In fact, when the angel comes to his father to announce that he is about to have a son, he says, it is, this person will come, your son will come to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The way that John the Baptist prepares is, is not a physical roadway. He is not the ancient version of the Department of Transportation to PennDOT. His job is through preaching the word of God to prepare hearts. So that Christ, when he comes, is seen. And this, this gets right to verse 5. 
that the purpose of the voice is to prepare us so that we can see the glory. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You know, on one level, this is looking yet to the future. That there is coming a time when all flesh will see Christ. They will bow the knee to him. So in one sense, this prophecy is, is yet still awaiting full fulfillment. But in the day of John the Baptist, it is already being fulfilled. It, on one level, it would be fulfilled at the cross. Where the glory of the Lord would be seen, not with a a visible light show, but it would be seen in God humbled, bleeding, broken for us. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, the hour of Christ, his moment of triumph and glory is not the, the Mount of Transfiguration, It is him being exalted, raised up, and nailed to a cross for sinners. And yet it began even before that. It began with Christ in a manger. It began when Mary goes to visit the mother of John the Baptist, and in meeting with her, John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb. It begins with a star leading wise men from the east to search for a new king. It begins with an angelic host crying out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It began with Joseph being told that the little one in his fiancé's, his betrothed womb, was a child of God, the son of God, created by God. The display of the glory of the infinite God began in humility and weakness. The omnipotent one became dependent on his mother, Those of you who have children, you you know what that is like. Christ would have gotten hungry. He would have gotten sick. He would have needed to be fed regularly. He would have needed to sleep regularly. The one who held the stars in the sky stooped to become one of us. Why? So that he might, through his death, be our pardon. Purchase our pardon. So that we may not only hear the call to comfort, but that we ourselves, through faith in Jesus, might experience that comfort. Comfort. Comfort ye my people. Glenn Scrivener is a Christian poet, grew up in Australia, 
which means that for him, uh, Christmas time growing up was always during the summer. Isn't that weird? I know some of our missionaries who have lived in the southern parts. Yep, Dan, Lauren, yep, there you go. Uh, you guys grew up in uh, South America. It, it was summer for them. Isn't, isn't that just all wrong? Glenn Scrivener, as an adult, he moved to England, which is as far from summer as you can almost get. Christmas then changed. At least the, the, the season changed. And he writes a poem describing that, that change, but towards the end, he, that, that change of feeling of the seasons, but towards the end, he describes this. And it's worthy of our meditation. He says, it's dark in the Bible when Christmas is spoken, always a bolt from the blue for the broken. It's the valley of shadow, the land of the dead. It's no place in the inn, so he stoops to the shed. He's born to the shameful, bends to the weak, becomes the lowly, the God who can't speak. And yet what a word, this Savior who comes, our dismal, abysmal depths he plums through crib and then cross to compass our life, to carry and conquer our brother in strife. He became what we are, our failures he shouldered to bring us to his life forever enfolded. He took on our frailty. He took on all comers. It's to turn all our winters to glorious summers. It's Christmas now, whatever the weather, Some soak in the sun, some huddle together. But fair days or foul, our plight he embraces. Real Christmas can shine in the darkest of places. Because Christ has come, the message of comfort comes to each of us. And this is an invitation for each of us this week to hear that invitation, to hear that call, And to know through Christ the comfort that he alone can bring. Friend, if you have never tasted of this comfort, it is a comfort for those who are broken. It is a comfort for those who are beaten, for those who feel the weight of their sin and shame, for those who feel the weight of their helplessness. If you are the high maintenance person, Christ has come for you. He only comes to rescue and redeem high-maintenance people. We are sinners. Yes, this is true. But in our God, there is greater comfort because through Christ Jesus, there is outstanding grace. Comfort, brothers and sisters. Comfort one another With these words, let us take comfort in the work of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are astonished that you would look on us with such love and affection to give your son for us. We are that sinful people. We are those who are laden down with iniquity. We are those who are burdened with not just our cares. We are burdened with our sin. And yet we receive this morning this word of comfort. Because the voice has cried in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And you, our Savior, have come. 
to turn all our winters to glorious summers. Thank you. Thank you. Teach us, fill us this week with hearts of contentment and joy in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name, our Savior. Amen.